0: Uh, This is a News Radio 1440 podcast.
1: Good evening, everybody, and thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for being with us on the program, the first Tactics episode of the year 2021. That's right, somehow we survived 2020. It was a heck of a year, but, you know, it's only going to get worse. So <laughs> I'm glad I could bring that little ray of sunshine into your life. But thank you for being with us, seriously, whether you're watching us on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, Facebook, wherever you're watching us, we appreciate you making us a part of your day. And even though there is a ton going on and we have a lot to cover, we're, we've, you know, been gone for, what, three weeks now because our last episode was our big festivist special right before Christmas. So, we have a lot to get to, but as always on Tactics, local news does take top priority. So, we're going to go ahead and go to this story. There is a new, I mean, it's kind of a, a federal story in a sense, because it's something the U.S. Mint did, but it's something that does, of course, involve the state of Alabama. They actually minted at the U.S. Mint a new quarter, and they're doing this series called America the Beautiful, and this is the 56th quarter in that uh in that series that the U.S. Mint has been doing. You're familiar with the state quarters, and they've been doing subsequent quarters after that that they've been releasing for different historic sites. And so you've probably seen some of these before. Well, the sixth one that they chose for this is actually in the state of Alabama. That's right. You can check this out right here. This is the new quarter by the U.S. Mint, and that's actually coronavirus stats. There we go. Okay, so the Tuskegee... Airmen, so you can see that the location that this is commemorating is the 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 field there in Tuskegee where they trained. And uh it's a really interesting design. I really like that they incorporate the planes, they incorporate the building and the hangar there, they incorporate the Tuskegee Airmen themselves. I'm not sure which one that is, but the caption there that they fought two wars, of course it's talking about the World War Two, the Tuskegee Airmen who division of entirely black pilots who by the way did not fail a single mission did not lose a single bomber that they were escorting so not only were they historic in the sense that that you know it was uh, a minority uh, an entirely po- populated by black people division but more importantly they were good and that's what matters more than anything else is that first and foremost they were americans and they were veterans that did their job and saved lives—no telling how many lives—because of the service to their country that they put forward. But the caption there that they fought two wars is, of course, indicative of the fact that they were fighting on the the front lines in World War II in the European theater, but that they were also fighting the war for equal rights back here in in America. Even though you know they weren't like going out and and protesting or marching. The very fact that they served their country in the way that they did, that did do a lot, especially being from the state of Alabama, to change people's perceptions and being as good as they were. Their level of excellence, the fact that they never lost a bomber, that did change some hearts and minds. And so they are being commemorated. They ought to be commemorated. I think this is a fantastic thing for the state of Alabama. It's just a really cool tribute. It's a really cool tribute to a group of great Americans and the state of alabama should be proud of that and and as an alabamian and and have been in my entire life been born right here in the state of alabama i know that i certainly am now the second part of that because i think that this is really cool i have no complaints about it whatsoever i think that it's a great design my only complaint is why was this not the alabama state quarter I'm not complaining about the quarter itself. In fact, I like it so much, I think that this should have been on Alabama's state quarter as opposed to being part of this subsequent series after the state quarters have all been decided and then going back and, and looking at some historic sites, and this one just happened to be in Alabama. Why were the Tuskegee Airmen not on our state quarter instead of Helen Keller? Because Helen Keller was a rabid communist, a white supremacist, And, I mean, had some of the worst ideas in American history. I know that I'm going to be offending people. This is part of my quest to become the most unliked man on the internet. Uh, I know that this is going to offend a lot of people, especially people from Alabama that hold her in high regard. But, I mean, the simple truth of it is, you don't have to take my word for it. Look it up. She was a eugenicist. She actually believed that people like her that were born with certain deformities should go ahead and be killed as children, going along with the doctrine of one of her heroes, Margaret Sanger, the... Founder of Planned Parenthood, she ran in these circles with these types of people. She actually believed that people like her should not be allowed to live and that we should basically wipe out all of the people that are inferior. So Helen Keller, not really a great representative for the state of Alabama or our values. Tuskegee Airmen, a much, much better selection. I think that these guys should have been on our state quarter. I would have also been okay with something regarding the space program. Heck, I think almost anything would have been better than Helen Keller. Uh, the only thing that I would have been more upset about by putting Helen Keller on is if they had included Hugo Black. Like, that's the Supreme Court justice from the FDR administration. That's literally the only person in Alabama history that I can think of that I would have been more upset about being on the quarter than Helen Keller. But anyway, you know, I don't want to gripe or, or turn this into uh, turn this into a gripe fest because I really am thrilled about this quarter. I think that it's great. I think it makes Alabama look good. And we basically have two quarters from our state that are going to be circulating around and going into people's pockets. I mean, with the coin shortage and the cash, uh, cash out, I think is what it's being called, where people are just moving to paperless forms of currency does this make a huge impact? Certainly not as much as it would have back in the day when people tended to carry a lot more cash and did that on a much more regular basis, but you know, it's good publicity for the state. All around, it's a good story. I just wish that it had come sooner. That's really my only complaint, and when your complaint about something is, I wish that we had more of this thing that that I'm complaining about. If that's your only complaint, that's that's a pretty good day. So, uh, applause to the United States Mint for designing this quarter. I think it's fantastic. I love that it's good publicity for our state, and I believe that that was released today, if I'm not mistaken. It was either today or yesterday. But either way, the U.S. meant doing good, good work there, and I do applaud them for that. This was a great selection to show a little bit of American history and Alabama history as well. Speaking of other local stories, this one is much more unfortunate. Mayor Randall Woodfin of the city of Birmingham, he's not in great shape. We heard the other day that he has actually been hospitalized because of pneumonia that is related specifically to COVID that I don't know that if he's, if he's in like any danger of losing his life or anything, but he did have to be hospitalized because of that. So I would just like to ask everybody to pray for a speedy recovery to Mayor Woodfin. It would be really helpful. I'm going to be praying for him and, you know, hopefully he has the fast recovery, but Even though I, you know, I don't wish any ill will on Mayor Woodfin at all. I wish him the best. I hope that he is back on his feet and back up to fighting strength as soon as he can. I may not like the guy. He may be my political opponent, but I don't wish any ill ill will on him. And I don't think that that would be a very Christian thing to do if I did. But I am going to say this. This is a guy who was first on the bandwagon when it came to the coronavirus shutdowns. And it was the, if I'm not mistaken, he had the very first mask mandate of any mayor in the state of Alabama. Out of all of the cities in Alabama, if I'm not mistaken, Birmingham was first and they have had a mask mandate continuously since like early March. So we're, you know, it's almost a year old, the mask mandate that was put into place in the in the city of Birmingham so I you know obviously I don't agree with the guy much politically he's he's a far left Democrat which is expected for someone who is the mayor of the bluest city in the state well I think that or Selma you'd have to look at it compared per capita obviously Birmingham has more but they got a lot more people but either way um, it kind of reminds me of this incredibly obnoxious Alabama Department of Public Health PSA that runs on my station, News Radio 1440, and I assume every other Cumulus station, 95.1 The Fox, Sports Radio 740, you know, all the stations that we own. And it just, it annoys the fire out of me. And the reason that it does is because it's so condescending, and they're like, seriously, COVID doesn't care about you. Well, of course it doesn't. It's a dumb virus. It doesn't think. But the implication there that is given with it, and th- this PSA is months old, so I'm complaining about something long after its, its first debut, but I'm going to tie it back into the Randall Woodfin thing. You'll see how. The thing that annoys me about it is that, and, and it even says at some point in the commercial, it's, it condescendingly suggests that anybody that isn't going to wear a mask, the reason that they're doing that is because they don't believe the virus is real. Look, no serious person believes the virus is not real at this point. There is, uh, I mean, with the exception of maybe some people that wear tinfoil hats and and are homeless, there's really nobody left that believes that the pandemic is some kind of farce at this point. There are no serious people doing this, but the reason that the Alabama Department of Public Health does it and... and says it in this way is because that is how they think of the average person in Alabama that doesn't want to wear a mask. It's not because you care about freedom and personal liberty. It's not because you've seen the study and, and done your own research and determined that masks, there's really no evidence that they help out. The only reason that you could possibly do that is because you're a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal that doesn't believe in science and thinks that, worth, that, the, that the earth is flat. That's really the, the way that they see anybody that does not look at the data and interpret it exactly the way that they see it. And because of that, they have this very condescending PSA. And ultimately, it goes back to what I have been saying for a very long time. The mask is primarily a religious totem. It is a way for people on the left to signal to one another that they are on the same side and they agree with other people who are wearing the mask. And and to a degree, not wearing a mask has become that to some extent as well. It can do that for either side, but I'm saying the vast majority of that, uh, the the virtue signaling has gone on with people that are trying to wear the mask as a symbol of solidarity and compliance, because it certainly ain't protecting them from the virus at this point, as we know from the data over and over and over again, if you've been watching this program for any, uh, any amount of time. But the thing is, the underlying point of that PSA is correct. The virus doesn't care about you. The virus doesn't care if you are a super far-left mayor who talks about the science, like it's some kind of entity that is going to protect us, and if we just uh, give the right sacrifices at the altar at the right amount of time, and if we really believe hard enough in the science, then it's going to create a magical shield of science around us that keeps us from getting the virus. Look, Mayor Woodfin has been on this from the very beginning. He's been even worse than Mayor Reed, the mayor of our own city of Montgomery. He he has been virtue signaling from the very beginning. He has been a good little soldier and walked lockstep with everything that the the Democrats wanted, that the, the Fauci's of the world that want continuous lockdowns from now until the end of time. He has been in lockstep with them since the very beginning. And yet somehow... He wound up getting the virus and had a pretty bad case of it to the point to, that he had to be hospitalized. Now, it's funny to me that when people like Donald Trump or Kelly McEnany or anybody associated with the right gets it, immediately the media pounces on that and says, well, it's just a shame and this is so, you know, this is avoidable. I've seen that so many times. It's like, it's such a shame that this happened it was an avoidable death. You remember this with Herman Cain that... Uh, he wound up getting the virus they think from a Trump rally nobody's been able to prove that he could have gotten it from a number of different places but they they claim that it happened at a Trump rally maybe it did it's probably the most likely place that he got it but either way they say well it's just such a shame because it was an avoidable death now you know like I said I want the best for Mayor Woodfin I hope he has a quick recovery I hope he's out of the hospital tomorrow and back at his job Uh, I would love that that would be great news I don't think that was going to happen you know it'd probably be a few days for him to recover but the point is I want him to have as fast a recovery as humanly possible. However, it's funny to me to watch the differences in reaction that whenever it's somebody on the right getting it, they assume that the reason that that person got it is because they're just a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal that engaged in reckless behavior and they don't believe hard enough in the science. Because again, leftism is an alternate religion. It is not an alternate political ideology anymore. It has morphed into a proto-religion. And now we see Mayor Woodfin, who is one of the priests of this religion, who is going out and actually saying to people and mandating with the blunt force of law that you must wear a mask, that you're not smart enough. See, I is the benevolent dictator of the city of Birmingham. I'm the smart one. I know what's best for you. Therefore, I will dictate down to you from upon high what you need to do to stay healthy and what is the best decision for you to make. That is how Woodfin thinks, and he has made this abundantly clear over and over and over again in speeches that he's made about this very subject. And yet, somehow, he got it. Was it because he didn't believe hard enough in the science? Was it because he was just not cautious? Or No, and no one's suggesting that. You see, because if the mask were all that effective, and they, then Mayor Woodfin wouldn't have got it. Now, maybe he was being super cautious, maybe he was doing a ton of social distancing, maybe he was wearing the mask, but see, that's the problem with people on the left at this point, the way that they have handled this. Only one of two things is possible at this point. Either he's a hypocrite and not doing that stuff, and that's how he got the virus, or he is doing all of that stuff and got the virus anyway, in which case, it doesn't seem like it's really doing all that much to protect you. Now, this would be an anecdotal case of that, and I understand that. I'm not trying to make my entire case based off of this, but I've already shown you the data that shows that it doesn't work. So maybe an anecdotal case of somebody who believes in all of this stuff without any scientific evidence whatsoever, maybe the anecdotal case will actually cause some people to rethink this. I think not. But the bottom line of this is, just like that PSA from the Alabama Department of Public Health says, the virus doesn't care about you. The virus doesn't care if you're super broke. The virus doesn't care if you're marching for Black Lives Matter. The virus doesn't care if you are wearing a mask. The virus doesn't care if you are uh, adhering to all of the social distancing protocol and listening to all the rules and doing everything the CDC says. The virus will still get you. And it may still kick you in the butt like it did with this guy. So, yeah, take precautions. Do things that make sense. But the idea that if you just believe hard enough in the science that you're going to be protected from the virus, which is what you would think by watching CNN and some of the other media outlets that are pushing a lot of this garbage without any scientific evidence or backing whatsoever, no, that's, that doesn't work. And this is a good example of that. You see, ultimately when it comes down to it, the left has been praying to an idol And just like the pagans of old who made gods out of wood and stone and the craftsmanship and the workmanship of men's hands, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't hear your prayers. They could not eat your sacrifices. You can wear the mask all that you want, but engaging in such religious rituals and believing in the science is not going to do you any good. Just like the old pagans, you are praying to a god who cannot hear you. And finally, at least when it comes to local news, Mo Brooks seems to be at odds with Ted Cruz. Now, I don't want to overplay this or overstate it, because I don't think that they're, like, actually mad at one another. I think that they just don't, or at least I haven't heard Ted Cruz commenting on Mo Brooks' reaction to this, but but Mo Brooks is looking at what Ted Cruz is trying to do, leading a group of now 11 senators. In challenging the Electoral College, and he's just kind of scratching his head going, I'm not really sure how to handle this. Now, to give you a little background before we jump into Mo Brooks' criticism of it, it's important to understand what Ted Cruz is trying to do here. So, first of all, the media has wildly mischaracterized what Ted Cruz has been calling for, because I saw headline after headline after headline, probably at least a half dozen just scrolling through my newsfeed, and then I actually started going out and seeking them, and so, then I saw about another dozen of this and they all pretty much read the same one if they're from a mainstream news source which is Ted Cruz is trying to undermine the election by doing this. And it's simply not true. What Ted Cruz has said is let's go ahead and have an electoral commission just like they did back in the Rutherford B Hayes election. We'll have an electoral commission to investigate and see if there really is voter fraud. And we will make the decision based on that, and we will just hold off on the certification uh, until that is taken place. He said it it can take 10 days. We can do it very quickly. We will do it with as much haste as we can muster, and we will try to go ahead and get that through in the allotted amount of time. And we'll just put off the certification until that point, because remember, they do have until January 20th. So... Because of that, this is what Ted Cruz is suggesting doing. The media is suggesting that he's trying to undermine the election or trying to steal it, and this is some last-ditch effort to get Donald Trump elected. Uh, a lot of people have also suggested that it's some kind of publicity stunt, that it's not going to go anywhere, but it's something that to, to signal to people that Ted Cruz is loyal to Trump and doing everything he can. But that's not what's happening. All he's saying is, there is clear evidence that some funny business went on. Let's just... Hold off on the certification for a few days. Just hold off on it. Have this electoral commission go through and look at the evidence and have them come back and report back to us. And if they say, you know what, there wasn't any voter fraud, okay, we'll go ahead and certify it then. And if not, we won't. And we'll just hold off on that certification until that takes place. That is all Ted Cruz has suggested. That and the 11 other senators that has joined him on this. Tommy Tuberville, our own senator from the state of Alabama joined him in this as well. But Mo Brooks, he's leading a separate effort, which is going to be to challenge the Electoral College on the day of. So instead of putting off the certification, Mo Brooks wants to actually object to the certification on that day. So these are different approaches. And I don't know that either one has any shot of actually working, but we'll get to that in a second. So you can see here this is Mo Brooks, and he's he's asking some questions of Ted Cruz's approach when questioned by Lou Dobbs on Fox News.
0: Senator Cruz is proposing uh, a uh, electoral vote commission, uh, like occurred uh, in 1876, uh, with an urgent uh, uh, audit of the vote uh, and a con- convening of that commission. Uh, it, it, AT THE ONE LEVEL IT SOUNDS FINE, ON THE OTHER LEVEL IT SOUNDS LIKE IT'S SUBTERFUGE. WHICH DO YOU THINK IT IS? WELL, I'M BAFFLED BY IT, uh, QUITE FRANKLY. IF IT HAD BEEN PROPOSED BACK IN EARLY NOVEMBER, uh, THAT would have BEEN ONE THING. Uh, THE QUESTION NOW IS HOW DO YOU GET A VOTE ON IT? WHAT PROCESS DO YOU USE BETWEEN NOW AND 1 P.M. EASTERN TIME ON WEDNESDAY TO GET A VOTE TO CREATE THIS KIND OF COMMISSION? Mm-hmm. I DON'T KNOW of a, OF a MECHANISM THAT IS AVAILABLE TO HAVE THAT KIND OF VOTE IN THE HOUSE OR THE SENATE. Uh, TIME WILL TELL IF THEY'RE ABLE TO DO THAT. BUT FROM A substantive STANDPOINT, EVEN IF THEY ARE ABLE TO GET THIS COMMISSION CREATED, TO HAVE IT DONE IN 10 DAYS, THERE'S NO WAY IN THE WORLD THAT A COMMISSION CAN DO A COMPLETE AND THOROUGH INVESTIGATION THAT WOULD DIVULGE TO THE AMERICAN PEOPLE AND MEMBERS OF THE HOUSE AND SENATE HOW BAD THE VOTER FRAUD AND THE ELECTION THEFT HAS BEEN IN THE NOVEMBER 2020 ELECTION CYCLE.
1: So, Mo Brooks is actually raising some really good points here. Basically, his points boil down to two things. First of all, I don't see how they would be able to do an investigation in 10 days, and I don't know how you would even get the votes to do that. That's a good point. Ted Cruz does not have the level of support that he needs in the Senate to be able to put something like this together. And the second point, which is, even if he did... They couldn't really conduct an investigation that would satisfy everybody. Ten days is not much time to get all of that information together. And Mo Brooks is, you know, he's got a good point. Ten days probably wouldn't be enough to get enough evidence together to try to figure out whether or not this thing was actually done above board or not. That would be an awful lot to investigate in several different states for that commission to be able to complete that task in 10 days. That is a tall, tall order, and I don't think that they can do it, and Mo Brooks apparently does not either. So it seems as though because of that, Mo Brooks' argument is basically, this is a waste of time. Mo Brooks is not saying that Ted Cruz is doing something dumb or unconstitutional. He is saying, this is a waste of time, Because it makes more sense to go ahead and get to the certification process and go through the method that I'm suggesting, which is object to the consideration, and then hash it out and then have a vote, rather than Ted Cruz's approach, which is let's hold off, have an independent commission, come back in 10 days, and then go through the certification process. Mo is saying that that's a waste of time. Here's the problem with that, though. Mo Brooks seems to kind of contradict himself here because he says in this same interview over and over again that there's plenty of evidence, that the evidence is overwhelming, it is clear, and he's been saying this for a while. He's been giving daily speeches almost at the well of the United States House of Representatives to explain all of this. So basically he's saying the evidence is there, it already exists. And then he's simultaneously saying, but if we did have one and they, they wouldn't have the ability to do it in 10 days, well, if it already exists, all Mo Brooks would have to do is walk up to the commission and say, by the way, here's all the evidence. You, you can read it right there in that folder. And so I could kind of see the argument that Mo Brooks is making if he's like, well, it's a waste of time because we already have the evidence. But you can't make that case and then also say, well, it's a waste of time because 10 days wouldn't be enough to come up with enough evidence to satisfy it. And by the way, I'm not attributing any ill motives to Mo Brooks. I'm just saying that it seems as though that argument is inconsistent. And remember that Mo Brooks has come on this program specifically to discuss this. And what he was saying and what he was laying out about the history of this process, the precedent that has been set, I I agreed with and thought that it actually made sense to me. And here's the other thing. If Mo Brooks really wants to get some support behind it, the best thing that could happen is Ted Cruz's approach where there is a 10-day investigation. Is 10 days enough to gather the information? Probably not. That's a legitimate criticism for Brooks. I'm not saying that Brooks does not have a good point here. I'm just saying that it seems contradictory with past statements that Brooks has said about basically saying all the evidence is already there. And then at the same time, wouldn't having the investigation and turning up something be more likely to garner support than Mo Brooks's approach, which is basically to just have a two-hour, three-hour debate when he challenges the Electoral College process at the certification ceremony? I don't see that being something that could convince people to throw out the Electoral College. But the sad thing is, I don't think either of these approaches is going to end up with anything. I think that you could honestly, I think that you could have on videotape Democrat officials straight up marking ballots down for Biden over and over and putting them into voting machine. You could have that on tape and the Democrats in the house would still vote to certify and put Joe Biden in office. Like even if if even if you had that, even if you had a no-doubt smoking gun, the Democrats would not care they would vote for him, and that's why I'm looking at this thing and just saying, I think it's a fruitless effort, and I don't think they're going to find that video. So I just, I don't see it happening, I don't. I would love for something like that to happen, but at this point, the Electoral College has already been put into place. It's been certified by the state legislatures and the governors. It's basically a done deal at this point. And I do wish that the Democrats in the House had enough integrity to see this happen and go, oh, yeah, well, that means we need to not vote to certify this thing because there's very clear evidence that several of the states that are in question that could potentially get... uh, Well, actually... Regardless of what it would do to the final vote tally, I was going to say, um, you know, it would be enough to put in question whether or not Joe Biden won. That doesn't even matter. If there is even one electoral college vote, even if it has nothing to do with whether or not uh, Joe Biden or, or Donald Trump becomes president, if the electoral college vote is in question, that still needs to be something that is looked into. Like, I, based on this, I 100% think that at the very least, Pennsylvania and Georgia were stolen, just based on the, the research that I've done. But even if Trump got both of those states, he still would not get to 270. Doesn't matter. We need to know that. Now, Michigan, Wisconsin, those are a little bit more iffy. I think that the Democrats did cheat, but I think that they would have won anyway. And so because of that, I think they probably did cheat, but it was a moot point. They cheated, but they didn't have to, so Joe Biden would have won those states anyway, and Joe Biden is the legitimate president of the United States. I think that that's probably, not absolutely, but probably the most likely outcome of what happened. Doesn't make sense to me, I don't like it, but I try to go where the truth leads no matter whether I like the result or not. Could you make a case that there was enough of a discrepancy there that Joe Biden really didn't win that vote? Oh yeah, and it would not shock me. It would not shock me in the least. But I'm saying there's enough of a margin there that I'm not sure whether or not the Democrats even needed to cheat for Joe Biden to win those states. And, you know, with with Arizona, I'm a little bit more iffy on. I tend to think that Arizona probably, we, we, we do have Joe Biden winning that one in Nevada. I, I don't think that, that Donald Trump would be able to produce the numbers to show that that was happening. But ultimately... That's kind of where I see the status of the race right now, but I do like the fact that they're going to look at the certification and go, look, and and this is, by the way, what Ted Cruz is saying. He's saying, you know, maybe we wind up with a President Joe Biden anyway after looking into all this, but we still need to look into it. Mo Brooks said exactly the same thing when he was on this show. He said, well, yeah, I'd love for the side effect of what we're doing to be the election of Donald Trump, but the goal is is showing that the results of the election, uh, finding where the fraud is and rooting it out. And that's the right kind of goal to have. Mo Brooks is saying, I hope it ends up with Trump winning. But if it doesn't, that's not the important part. The important part is finding out where the fraud is and making sure that we have the correct vote tally. Then he is absolutely right on that. So is this a wise strategy, both Mo Brooks and Ted Cruz's approach? That's a difficult question because I can see good arguments on both sides. There are conservatives that really care about this stuff and they are conservatives, they don't hate Donald Trump, they're not doing this because they they want a different Republican or they like Joe Biden better. Like real hardline dyed in the wool conservatives that are making the case, no, we don't need to do this because it might be a problem for the electoral college in the future. Like if we have Republicans now stepping out and saying that the Electoral College isn't working and that the federal government can just step in when they don't like the results of the Electoral College and just say, nope, we're not going to abide by that. We're just going to go ahead and do what we want. That's it's a very bad precedent that could be weaponized against Republicans in the future. That is not an illegitimate concern. In fact, Ben Shapiro was making this case on News Radio 1440 just the other day. And I mean, he really wanted Trump to win, and is as conservative as anybody that you'll run into. That's one of the reasons he's on News Radio 1440. But my point in all of that is, there is a legitimate case to be made that because we want to protect the integrity of the Electoral College and we don't want to set a precedent that Congress people can just throw out the Electoral College any time that they want to or that they don't like the results that that would be a very bad precedent to set. We don't want Congress from now on being the one that actually elects the president. I agree with that. I agree with that wholeheartedly. The only issue I have with that is we have reached a point now that the Democrats have no scruples. They will weaponize literally anything Because they see Donald Trump, and I think that it's not even necessarily about Donald Trump and hasn't been for a long time, I think that it actually has a lot more to do with you. And when I say you, I mean the average person that isn't way on the far left. Maybe they make some room for the moderates, but basically if you're not a socialist at this point, they want you out of the country. So you, the average person, they have such a seething disdain for you at this point. They think of you as backwards and outdated and as a problem. And because of that, they are willing to, because they think that you, like, just you being able to vote is dangerous. And so they are okay with this. The reason that they are okay with rigging the election is because the way that they view it, I get this is dumb, I'm just stating their position, The way that they view it is Trump is literally Hitler and if he wins this election, we're going to have actual concentration camps filled with gay people. That's how they see it. Is that dumb? Yes, it's stupid. There will be actual concentration camps filled with uh, Mexicans and gays and basically everybody that, in their idea that they perceive as Trump not liking. That's how they see it. And because of that, they're like, you know what, whatever it takes to beat that guy, yeah, that's fine. If we have to lie, if we have to cheat, if we have to steal, if we have to do underhanded things, that's fine, because we are morally superior to them, ergo, anything that we do is justified. I'm not saying that's the position of everybody on the left, but there is a, there is a significant plurality of people on the left that are perfectly okay with anything it takes to get rid of Trump, ultimately because they want to get rid of what he represents. In their head. Remember, I'm saying that because that's their position. But ultimately, that's the problem. And because of that, they don't mind going around the EC. And here's the thing. As much as I love the Electoral College, I've done multiple videos in defense of the Electoral College. I think on Constitution Day this year, that was actually, I I went into a long lecture. I went over the five dumbest arguments against the Electoral College. The Electoral College is a great system. It's not a perfect system, but it's a great system. And it's one that has served America well for some time now. The problem is, if the left has so thoroughly corrupted the Electoral College to where it doesn't really matter whether it's there or not, I want it to be there, and I think that that should be the standard that we cling to, but it seems as though, based on this, uh, the, the massive amounts of fraud that have been going on in this election, the Electoral College isn't enough to stave that off anymore. I mean, the Electoral College only works if the states themselves are having free and fair elections. If we're not doing that anymore, if that is no longer the standard, then having the Electoral College doesn't matter. I'm not saying that the Electoral College doesn't matter as a whole. I'm saying that once you have rigged the system so thoroughly that it doesn't function, we basically already don't have the Electoral College. And so... I understand the strategic trying to to play chess in your head and trying to strategically figure out where your enemy is going to go next. They were already gunning for the Electoral College. They've been doing it for a while now. And the thing is, they found a workaround. I mean, these are Democrats. They they don't play by the rules. Do you really think that they were going to try to get two-thirds of Congress to agree to this and three-fifths of the states to ratify a constitutional amendment to get rid of the Electoral College? They may eventually do that. But they'd a lot rather just work around the system and find strategic places where they can go and subvert the Electoral College to where they don't have to go through all that. I mean, they already tried to get rid of the Electoral College with the popular vote thing that they did, uh, well, back in 2016, and, and actually succeeded in several states. They tried to basically make a workaround for the Electoral College. That's my point, is that they were already doing this. The Democrats cannot threaten Republicans with saying, well, we'll get rid of the Electoral College if you're not going to abide by it. They're already doing that. I wish that they weren't. I wish that that was something that was off-limits. But it's not. They're already gunning for it. It's just like um, AOC and, and the squad threatening to do certain things if Amy Coney Barrett was nominated. Yeah, well, all the things you were threatening were things that you were saying you were going to do before... Ruth Bader Ginsburg even died, so your threat doesn't make a lot of difference. This is the same thing. Your threats cannot affect us anymore, because you already said that you're going to do them anyway, so why should we worry about whether or not, you know, what the Democrats reaction is going to be to this? I, you know, I I have a great deal of respect for Ben Shapiro, he's a great host, I'm glad to have him on News Radio 1440, but I I do think that he's looking at this one incorrectly, unfortunately. Um, But, Ultimately, the reason that is the case and the reason that I think that the Electoral College has been so thoroughly tainted that it's just not enough of a bulwark to stop radical leftism anymore is because in the individual states, the leftists have institutionalized cheating. So the cheating is going on, but the reason that you've seen so many of these court cases and the reason that you've seen even good conservative judges look at these cases and go, I'm sorry, no laws were broken. Because they've institutionalized the cheating. They've institutionalized just ballot drop-off boxes where there's nobody monitoring and they say that they're going to have video surveillance of them, but there never is, and they can just leave it there and then come by and collect it later where it would be really easy to stuff the ballot box but they can't throw it out because that's the way the state's law reads. Now, those are legal. And so this is the problem that you're running into. It's not that they aren't doing things that are underhanded. It's that the underhanded things that they are doing are within the purview of the law. They have altered the law to where the bad cheating things that they are doing are technically legal. That's the problem. And so what I think the Republicans should be focusing on right now is spending the next four years trying to undo that, making sure that these systems are in place to where we do know that the vote is fair and this really is what the people voted for. Because right now, I think, unfortunately, this one is a moot point. I mean, it's kind of like when it comes to to a sport, okay, if the rule is bad, then you need to change the rule. You, you can't change the rule in the middle of the game. You have to drop back and punt. Another sports analogy. You have to drop back and punt and actually change the rule so that this does not happen next time. And What I'm afraid of is that because this is fresh on our minds and we're really hyped up about it right now, we're thinking about it now, but four years from now, when the next election rolls around, we will have completely forgotten about it and not really done anything to correct it. And I think that Georgia will be an interesting case study in whether or not this was really the case. If, if we see tomorrow morning that the Senate is controlled by the Republicans and both Republicans won in a, you know, in a fair election, you know, that, that may undermine the case that the election in Georgia was stolen somewhat. I mean, I, mean, I, I think that that would go a long way in suggesting that. I'm not sure, but the, the argument that a lot of conservatives are making is that this sets really bad precedent for the federal government to just uh, ram roughshod, uh, run roughshod over the will of the states and the Electoral College. It is a legitimate concern. I'm just saying that I think that we've gotten, I honestly think we've gotten past the point to where that is a legitimate argument because the left is trying to get rid of that and has already institutionalized the way to undermine the Electoral College at this point anyway. But... Ultimately, what this boils down to is, because we have to ask ourselves the question, what happens next? Like, what is the next step? If Trump is really going to not be in office, and that is the most likely outcome at this point, that you are going to see a President Joe Biden and, you know, six months in, a President Kamala Harris probably, that is going to be a reality in a very short amount of time. And that seems to be the case, Are we sunk? Is this the end? Especially if we lose the Senate. Do we now have just Democrats running everything and and that's the end of America as we know it? Honestly, that's possible. With the way that the players are set up and the, the way that the levers of power are pointing right now, that is a real possibility. I would like to tell you that that's not going to happen, but I can't in good conscience do that. I want to tell you the truth. And the truth is that maybe that happens. But, you know, I think I've made this analogy, this comparison, rather, on the air before. But I really see Trump as kind of a Samson figure. Now, if you know anything about the story of Samson from the Book of Judges, Samson's not a good dude. He's super strong, and he can, you know... Slay a whole bunch of Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. And he can tear apart a lion with his bare hands. That's really cool stuff. I mean, that's that's like comic book stuff. That's really awesome. But ultimately, his moral character is pretty awful. I mean, he's got women issues. He's sleeping around. He's basically doing all the things that God commanded Israel not to do. And it isn't until his final act in his life where he destroys the temple that he's being kept in, that Samson finally kind of turns back to God and, and kind of redeems himself. But Samson is not a good guy throughout the vast majority of his story. And you know, honestly, I see a lot of Trump in Samson, or Samson in Trump, however you want to interpret that that he's not the leader that anybody would want. He's certainly not somebody to look up to morally. But when it comes right down to it, he is the big strong guy that sometimes you need to thump your opponents in the head. And he's done a good job of that. I mean, Donald Trump, as I've said many times, he is a human hammer that is hunting for a nail. Sometimes he hits a nail, sometimes he hits a baby, but either way, like that's who the guy is. He's a fighter. And sometimes that's great, and sometimes it's annoying. And sometimes he makes a big mistake. But ultimately, that is Donald Trump. He is a brawler. That is what he cares about. And so, when you think about it that way, and when you think of him as this kind of Samson figure, Samson didn't always do what God wanted him to do, and he was certainly not a moral example for anybody. But Samson is the one that started the revival. Samson is the one that started the process of Israel taking their land back from the Philistines. Because the Philistines had been a thorn in their side basically from the time they got into Cana until the time that they were finally defeated at the hands of King David. And it took a King David, a man that was a man after God's own heart, somebody that absolutely followed the tenets and precepts of God, not always perfectly because he was an imperfect human being, that somebody that the the vast majority of his life is spent in service to God and he did it the right way. But David didn't start that. It started with Samson, a incredibly flawed individual who broke virtually every law that God ever made. But that was the warrior that Israel needed to get the ball rolling to start out with. So I guess my answer is, maybe this is it for America. Uh, may- maybe this is our last hour, maybe this is the uh, the last, I don't know, the, the last puff of, of fire before everything burns down. The, the, this is our last hurrah. I, I don't know, it, it could be. Nations rise and nations fall, and that is true throughout the entirety of human history. However, maybe, maybe, Trump is Samson. And I'm sure that the Israelites didn't look at Samson and think that this is the guy that is going to deliver us from the Philistines when they first saw him. And certainly even when he died, taking down the temple of the Philistines, they didn't think, well, that's, you know, this is the guy who saves us from the Philistines, but he's the one that started that process. Maybe that's who Trump is. And maybe it takes us a few generations to get to a King David. I don't know. But with God, all things are possible, and maybe that is what happens. Maybe this is the end of America. Maybe this is the start for us going back to God and being the nation that we were founded to be. I really hope it's that. But ultimately, that is going to depend upon us. Just like Israel had to turn back to God to get to King David... Samson couldn't do it all on his own. He was not the one that, you know, he started the ball rolling, but he wasn't the one that brought Israel back to God and, and delivered them from, his, from their enemies. And Donald Trump probably can't do that either. So ultimately, it does fall to us to do the right thing, to confess his name and to fall back to him and to rely on him to deliver us. You know, I don't know if the nation can be saved. I really don't. I have no idea but I have chosen my side I have taken my stand I have charted my course I have decided what side of history I am going to be standing on and I'm not moving I have decided that I am going to follow truth wherever it is I am going to believe in objective truth and I am going to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the best of my ability I will not comply and I will not serve your secular gods no matter what you do to me will not be silent, and my lips will not fail to confess the name of Christ. People on the left, you can do whatever you want to to me. I will not change on that. And I think that there's an awful lot of people in this audience that feel the same way. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a minute on tactics.
0: Uh, this is a News Radio 1440 podcast.
1: And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being on, here with us on Tactics. Be sure to like and subscribe if you're watching us on Facebook or YouTube. We certainly do appreciate that and appreciate you liking the page. Another big story that has been making the rounds is the the now infamous, I guess, Trump tape, which the Washington Post put out. Now, this is about a, I believe, about a two to three hour conversation between the Georgia Secretary of State and President Donald Trump, and they edited and, and pulled out about four, four and a half minutes of it. And a lot of people are complaining about it being taken out of context, but I'm just going to get let you listen to it before I give in a reaction and let you kind of make the decision of it. If you want to watch the full clip, of course, it's really easy to find if you Google it. But this is the relevant part. This is the part that's driving everybody crazy, saying that Trump was was basically ordering the Secretary of State to manufacture and make up some votes to make sure that he won the election. Go ahead and listen.
0: You should want to have an accurate election. And you're a Republican. We believe that we do have an accurate election. No, I, no, you don't. No, no, you don't. You don't have, you don't have, not even close. You got, you're up by hundreds of thousands of votes. You know what they did and you're not reporting it. That's a, you know, that's a criminal, that's a criminal offense. And, and you know, you can't let that happen. That's, that's a big risk to you and to Ryan, your lawyers. That's a big risk. But they are shredding ballots, in my opinion, based on what I've heard. And they are removing machinery, uh, and they're moving it as fast as they can, both of which are criminal fines, and you can't let it happen, and you are letting it happen. Oh, you know I mean? I'm notifying you that you're letting it happen. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state.
1: All right, so again, this is a case of the Washington Post and the rest of the media wildly overplaying their hand. Because there are things in this call that you could be critical of the president on. This is not the president's best call. But the idea that what he is ordering the Secretary of State in Georgia to do, which, by the way, he can't even technically do because he's not his boss... What they're suggesting is that when he says, I need you to find exactly this number of votes so that it will put me over the top so that I will win Georgia, that when he says, I need you to find the votes, what he really means is find the votes. See what I'm saying? What he really means is I want you to just make up some votes out of whole cloth to make sure that I win the state. Only an imbecile would suggest that this is what the president is talking about. Because it is very clear from this call that is not what the president is asking for. In fact, you can hear in that same clip, if you were to listen to the very beginning of it, he said, because we won the state. We did win the state, and you don't have an accurate vote. Trump is not saying that you need to make up votes. Trump is saying, I already have the votes. You're counting them wrong. And so everybody, especially people on the right, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but they're saying, oh, well, the Washington Post, they're selectively editing. Well, yeah, they are. And they're trying to do it specifically to make Trump look as bad as possible. But the truth is, you don't even have to go to the unedited part of it. You can just watch the clip that they gave you. And it's still in that same clip abundantly clear. That Trump is not suggesting that what the Secretary of State of Georgia needs to do is to just make up a bunch of ballots so that he can win the state. What he is saying is, you're counting wrong. We already have the votes. Because here's the thing. This is part of a a two-and-a-half-hour, three-hour, something like that, long call to the Secretary of State. If he was just telling him to make up votes, all he would have to do is call and say, Hey, I need you to make up some votes. That be the end of that conversation. The reason that he is sitting there and making this case and talking to him for hours on end is because he is trying to explain to him that he won the election, and this is the reasons that I won it, this is the reason that a lot of the votes that Joe Biden had are fraudulent, You're and he says in that same clip, you're off by like 100,000 votes. Okay, well, Trump wouldn't say that unless he believed that the votes already existed. He's saying that they are doing the election wrong, not that you need to just make up some votes out of thin air so that I can win the election. That's simply not what he's saying. And so the media, again, has an opportunity to make some legitimate criticisms of President Trump, but because they are crazy people and cannot help themselves, they smell blood in the water and they just go into an immediate blood frenzy, that they just start thrashing around and start suggesting that President Trump is trying to engage in some kind of election fraud. And that's simply not the case. No sane person would believe that it is. And here's the thing, because I I make this point all the time. I could make the left's arguments better than the left could. Because if I'm a political pundit and I hear that tape, I just criticize him on the legitimate stuff that there is to criticize on him in that tape, which is, you know, I'd say something to the effect of, look, Trump is such an egomaniac. He, look, he's not even capable of believing he could lose the state. Do you hear how he's saying that? He's like, because we won the state, and I know that we have the votes already there. You just need to count them. You see what an ego this guy has on him? That's a legitimate criticism. It's not election fraud, but it is something that the left could use to score some political points. But they they run right over that to the most absurd, idiotic thing, and this is Trump's superpower, it really is, that Trump, even when he screws up or makes a mistake, he causes the left to go so crazy that they look, that he looks sane by comparison. And maybe that's overplaying it a little bit on my part, too. Maybe that's exaggerating a little bit. But what I'm saying is that Trump, even when he does something that probably isn't the best look for him or doesn't necessarily look like it should be something that is in his favor like this phone call it winds up being a a, a drop in the bucket compared to the mountain of idiocy that the media and the left pushes out trying to get him on something like this is an opportunity for the left to do that legitimately but because they try to go to the most ridiculous possible interpretation of it they look like the ones that are idiots and completely miss out on some legitimate ways to score political points on that look You can make the case in this call that Trump is wholly self-interested. In other words, unlike the approach that Ted Cruz and Mo Brooks took earlier when we were talking about that before the break, that, look, we're just trying to find out what the vote count actually was. We know that there's fraud. We know that there's problems with this election. We're just trying to do some kind of audit and, and some kind of election commission to try to sort out which votes are legitimate and which votes aren't, so we can have an accurate count. And maybe that changes the outcome, maybe it doesn't, but we need to know that. That's the case they're making. Trump ain't making that case in this call, guys. The case that Trump is making is, I need you to find exactly the amount of votes that I need to win the state. He's like, now, you guys are off by, like, 100,000. I beat in a state like Georgia that, you know, doesn't... 100,000 would be a ridiculous victory um, he's saying, you guys clearly are off by like 100,000 votes that I clearly won. Yeah, hundreds of thousands, actually, is the way he says it. So like 200,000 or more votes. You're off by that much. It's an insane amount of votes that you're off by. Uh, but I need you to specifically find this number of votes to show people that I did, in fact, win the state of Georgia. Like, that that's who Trump is. He, you know, he... He has such a high opinion of himself, in his mind, he probably won all 50 states in the electoral He won California, too. But anyway, I mean, that, that's who the guy is. Love him or hate him, that's an accurate statement. And, and the thing is, people on the left that believe that Trump is this insane egomaniac, well, wouldn't Trump actually legitimately believe he won the election on legitimate grounds if that is the case? You cannot simultaneously make the, the case that Trump is some kind of egotistical psychopath and also he didn't believe that he won the election in Georgia legitimately and he's ordering the Secretary of State to make up some votes because he doesn't have the votes to support it. You cannot hold those two positions at the same time. You can hold one, you can hold the other, but you cannot hold them both and be logically consistent at the same time. You just can't do it, folks. But this is what the left asks us to believe over and over again. Uh, It's the same way that, that they are with Trump when they're like, you know, Trump is this evil, psychotic, comic book-esque villain that has all these plots going on. And he's, uh, you know, trying to muscle the Secretary of State of Georgia to do these evil things. And he's also trying to uh, use his influence over the president of Ukraine to dig up dirt on his political opponent and and all this other stuff. And then at the same time, like, yeah, Trump's just a moron. Like, he, he barely can dress himself in the morning he's so stupid okay well he can't be an evil genius and a moron at the same time it just isn't possible you can say he's one you can say he's the other but you can't say he's both at once and so again it's it's just the left stupidly shooting themselves in the foot and overplaying their hand as they always do unfortunately uh well i actually fortunately for me it just keeps me entertained if nothing else But Here's where Trump is absolutely right, and this is where he deserves credit where credit is due. The Secretary of State does indeed have a vested interest in denying any kind of funny business or widespread fraud in his state. Now, I'm not suggesting this of John Merrill. I'm just using this because he is our Secretary of State. In the same way, John Merrill, if there was rampant voter fraud... And I'm not saying John would do this, I'm just using him as an example because he happens to be our Secretary of State. If there was rampant voter fraud, John Merrill would have a motive to suggest to people that there was not. Why? Because it happened on his watch. I'm guessing the Secretary of State, who is a Republican, does want Trump to win. He would like for that election to swing in Trump's favor. But he knows that far more important to him in his career is making it seem as though there was not rampant voter fraud on his watch. He's basically the jailer who just had a bunch of prisoners escape and is like, uh, no, they, I I don't know what prisoners you're talking about. There's nobody even registered in this prison by that name. No, there's no prisoners missing here. That's what's going on here. The Secretary of State does have motive to make it sound as though that there was no voter fraud or at least so little that it wouldn't have made. difference. He does have a significant vested interest in making that case, even more so than Trump winning the presidency. Because as much as I'm sure he would like Trump to win the presidency, we're talking about his career here. So let's not pretend as though the Secretary of State, merely because he is a Republican, is absolutely above board and has absolutely no motivation whatsoever to conceal the fact that there was voter fraud here. Now, how widespread it was, I'm not sure. The evidence looks pretty, pretty damaging. Uh, there, there is quite a few blind spots going on in the state of Georgia when it comes to this election. And so Trump is 100% right that this guy does have a vested interest in making out as though there was no voter fraud in Georgia and everything was above board and there were no problems and they have an accurate vote count. That is true. But ultimately, this is a case study in why you cannot trust the media. You can't trust the media. Because over and over again, they have shown that they are going to try to overplay their hand, and whatever it takes, whatever fits their political narrative, that is the story that they are going to go with. They do it every single time, and they're doing it again one other story I wanted to talk about is, uh, and this is just, you know, because of my own libertarian leanings, Moderna, which is one of the companies that created one of the three, which is astounding that we have three different ones at this point, the three different coronavirus vaccines. So new reports actually show that uh, Moderna actually developed the vaccine in two days, which is insane. I don't know if they were just that lucky or they had that much insight. Keep in mind, the coronavirus, the new one, uh, COVID-19, the, uh, what is it, Um, CO-SARS-2 I think is the strain of the the coronavirus that we're dealing with now. Well, maybe because they've dealt with other similar coronaviruses beforehand, they just had a, a pretty big lead on that. But after only two days, they had the thing ready, but they had to wait for months to go through the proper testing and everything. And by the way, I'm a fan of testing. I'm a fan of going through animal trials and human trials. Like, all, all of these are good things. I'm not saying that these are bad things. However, we've had a lot of people die because of this virus in the meantime. And maybe some of those people would have liked to have gotten the vaccine that is now, you know, put, being pushed forward as the, the vaccine that is going to save us from this thing. And, and seems to be, uh, I think the Moderna one is 90% effective. And so this is one of the reasons that I do have pretty strong libertarian leanings. I'm guessing that there are a lot of vi- vaccines that are created in a couple of days that are highly dangerous because they were created in such a short amount of time. And who knows, maybe we'll even find out one day the Moderna vi- uh, vaccine is among them. But for a whole bunch of people that were very vulnerable and likely to get the disease, maybe they would have liked to have rolled the dice and taken their chances and they would still be alive today if that had been the case probably would have been a lot more people like myself that wouldn't have wanted to take it because there is a high risk of side effects and a very low risk of the virus. I mean, if you're asking me right now, I think the virus and getting it is significantly less risky based on my age and based on my relative health than it would be to get the vaccine, especially since side effects seem to, based on the studies that we're seeing now, they seem to manifest even more in younger people, which is an interesting flip from the way that it normally is. But that is what the data is showing. And so because the risk of the virus is significantly lower than the risk of the vaccine, I would opt to just get the virus as opposed to getting the vaccine. But an older person that was at high risk, that had less risk of side effects, which is what the data is showing now from these vaccines, maybe they would have liked to have taken the vaccine. Maybe they would have liked to have been on the front lines of that and been one of the first people to get it. And their life may have been saved if we had done that, and on top of that, the early adopters would have been a way for us to test the medicine very quickly. Now, maybe Moderna, because of liability reasons, wouldn't want to give the vaccine out in such short order or not have, you know, had this significant amount of time to test it. And if they did, because it's private property, it's their intellectual property, they should have the right to do that too. I'm just saying that if they had wanted to go to market with this thing even two days afterward, because they didn't change the formula, the same formula they've been using since that two days after they had started working on the virus months ago, I think that uh, this particular one was back in April, uh, maybe April or May. But anyway, that they would have been able to do this and probably saved quite a few lives had this been done. It kind of reminds me of something that John Stossel said, in a segment that he did uh, where he was talking about how the government screwed up gas cans and how the lawyers got involved and then there were all these government regulations and now they've made it to where the gas cans really don't work anymore. And he said, and he looked at the guy who is a lawyer and he says, you guys keep me from getting good stuff. And that's the libertarian stance on this. If there is a guy that wants to sell me something and a guy that wants to buy it from him, it's really nobody's business. If it's dangerous, okay, maybe it is dangerous, but that's up to the buyer to make that decision. And I think the same rule should apply to vaccines as well. I like testing. I want to wait. And me personally, I don't want to get the vaccine really early. I want to sit back and see what happens and then maybe consider getting the vaccine a little bit later if I determine that the risk of side effects is actually lower than the risk of what having the, the virus itself would be like. But, you know, we'll see. But that doesn't mean that I think that other people shouldn't also have the option to jump on it as soon as they want to if that is indeed what they want. I don't like the idea that the government can tell people, no, you're not allowed to do that. Let's go on to the Daily Dose of Stupid.
0: Now oh, you messed it up. <laughs> you're stupid.
1: And for today's Daily Dose of Stupid... If you watch the show if you know me you have a pretty good idea of what the daily dose of stupid is today watch this clip as they uh, part of the opening prayer to the 117th congress
0: we ask it in the name of the monotheistic god brahma and god known by many names by many different faiths a man and a woman
1: Uh, I love it when Democrats pretend to be Christians. It's hilarious. Uh, <laughs> so, a couple things on this. Before we get to the A-men and A-women thing, uh, does this not sound like something that Gregory Post would do? For those of you who don't know, Gregory Post is the character who does the Social Justice Warrior Bible. In fact, I um, you know, I should have played a clip of him real quick. You know what? I, I, I may do that real quick just to give you a little snippet of it. No, uh, no, I don't. I don't have one of those ready. But you know the the Gregory post thing. He's just a a basically a caricature of the super woke leftist preachers who are really far more concerned with their politics than preaching anything that the Bible says. And I think that that's what's going on with this representative. Um, oh, what's his name? Emmanuel. I'm blanking on it. But anyway, uh, Cullings, I think, is the last name. But anyway. Um, he's a a Democrat representative and he was asked to lead the prayer for this. And really, the way that he ends that prayer, it does sound like a comedy sketch, like he's not even a real person. And that's what makes it so hard. And and one of the reasons that I respect the Babylon Bee and other satire sites at this point, like the, the left has gotten so ridiculous, they're basically beyond satire. You can't even do satire because satire is supposed to be a ridiculous exaggeration of something. Basically, all they do now is ridiculous (laughs) exaggeration. And so now the satire sites, they can't even do satire anymore because the the Democrats are are satire of of themselves at this point. (laughs) Like, Gregory Post couldn't even have come up with something that dumb. But what I want to get to, even before we get to the A-men and A-women thing, The first part of that, where he says that he's praying to the monotheistic God and also the polytheistic God, which he names afterward, which is a Buddhist deity, and then goes on and says the God that is known by many names and many different faiths. Does that sound familiar to any of you Bible students? Because it sounds an awful lot to me like the Sermon on Mars Hill, where Paul is talking to the pagans of old, and again, I'm, I'm going back to this because it's the truth. Leftism has become basically old paganism. It is an alternate religion to Christianity. That's what went on here. He was praying to, as the Greeks at at Athens on Mars Hill would have called it, the unknown God. For those of you that are unfamiliar with this biblical principle, what the Greeks were doing is they were worshipping a whole bunch of gods because they believed that there were all these different gods, Zeus and Athena and Ares and uh, Hephaestus and so on and so forth. And so they prayed to all these different gods and then because there were so many gods, the Greeks figured well, there might be some gods that we might offend because we just don't know about them. So we're going to make this altar over here to the unknown god, so that they have an altar just like all of, of the other gods that we do know about. And Paul actually uses that cleverly as an end to explain to them about the one true God. That there is one God and that there are no others. And it's a very clever sermon, but I don't have time to go into a chaplain's report on it right now suffice it to say that the principle here is that the democrats are engaging in exactly the same thing that the pagans did which is basically they didn't really care about religion all that much basically whatever you wanted to believe is fine and Uh, All the gods were real gods, and they all had power that, you know, they wouldn't have said that the Hebrew god was not really a god. They'd just say, yeah, let's add him to the Parthenon of gods that we have here. They're just everybody's god is fine, and however you want to worship him is fine. And, you know, let's uh, sacrifice a goat and um, dance around naked and have sex with an underage girl, and that'll be, you know, that worship is just as good as the worship that we're engaged in here. It's all the same, this pluralism kind of idea. The reason that's a problem, especially for a Christian, is in a polytheistic system, that's okay. I'm not saying that it's morally okay overall. I'm saying that if you are a polytheist, that is consistent with your theology. There is no one that can call themselves a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also all of these other religions. They are exclusatory and always have been. If you were a Jew... You could either be Jewish, or you could be a person that worships the God of the Jews, but you couldn't be somebody that worshiped all these paganistic idols and also be somebody that was right in the sight of God. That's in the Ten Commandments. He he forbids that outright. And by the way, the same thing is true with Christianity. Christianity makes two claims. It makes a lot of claims, but these are the two I'm going to focus on. The first claim is that there is one God and this is him. And the second claim is, and this is how you worship him, and you're not going to worship him in other ways. Jesus Christ, as, as C.S. Lewis points out, he slammed the door on that. He gave you no other options. It is either worship him and obey him and him alone, or nothing. That's it. He gave you no options. And so this ridiculous pluralism where they're trying to just appease everybody and the, the God that's known by many different names and many different faiths, and everybody worships him, and they're all Okay. I'm sorry, there's no truth to that. None. None whatsoever. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any man that comes to the Father comes by me. And anybody that tries to come a different way is a robber and a thief, and he will not be tolerated within the fold of God. That person is going to be cast out. There is one path. You can take that one, or you can be cast out. Those are your only options in Christianity. And so it's hilarious to me that when the left tries to do anything related to Christianity or to show the world that, you know, we are Christians, when they actually lead a prayer to introduce the new Congress, they still can't help themselves. They, they want to be, you know, very careful careful that they don't offend anybody, so they engage in pluralism, which is specifically forbidden in Christianity. And so, you cannot be a pluralist and a Christian. You can be a pluralist and be a pagan, but you cannot be a pluralist and be a Christian. Those two things are mutually exclusive Of one another but the funniest thing about this which is of course gaining the most attention is the amen and a women term so amen is a Latin term meaning basically it is so or let it be so and it is derived from ahmen which is a Hebrew term basically meaning the same thing it is not a gendered term just because the letters M E and N Take place in concert with one another in the word amen does not mean it is a gender-charged term. It's not a masculine term. It just means it is so. And so, first of all, it's grammatically incorrect because if he's saying amen, wouldn't it be a women instead of a woman? Like, there's only one woman, but there's lots of men. That seems uh, not woke enough to me. (laughs) So... And also, uh, if, I thought the leftists didn't believe in men and women. I thought that gender was just an arbitrary construct, and there are really infinite numbers of genders. So why why are you enforcing the patriarchal idea, Representative Emmanuel, by the way, sharing a name with Jesus Christ, who also said that you can't have more than one God and I'm the only way to get to God. Um, why is it that you're engaging in, in that? Like, if you really believe that transgenderism is okay and that gender is just a social construct, then why are you enforcing the old-timey patriarchal idea of a binary gender construct? You racist, sexist bigot. See, that's the problem with wokeism. They engage in nonsense, and because of that, they can never do anything that is woke enough, even when they're doing their very best to be uber-woke. But it's, it's very clear based on this, this guy knows no scripture whatsoever. He knows nothing about the scripture. He doesn't even know what the word amen means. At best, he has maybe a third grade understanding of Christian theology. And frankly, I doubt that based on the way that he handles this. I think that though the Babylon Bee did the best job of this and the guys at Babylon Bee really are doing the Lord's work. uh, This was the headline that they put up in response to this. Biden promises a nationwide mask mandate and woman (laughs) like is this the standard that we're going to now even people on the left aren't defending this guy like even people on the left i think they're not like piling on to him either but even they aren't really defending him i think they even realize that this is just dumb and it really is i mean like would it be sexist for me to say mind your manners as opposed to mind your woe manners is politeness now a, a male thing exclusively because the word man happens to be in that word it's the same thing with what babylon b was doing with uh, mandate and, and woe mandate uh th- some of the memes on this have just been fantastic and by the way that that one that i shared with uh, the babylon b with joe biden that was uh, my buddy keith sent that to me so hat tip to you thanks keith for doing that but Ultimately, yes, this is funny, and it's goofy, and I have a good time with it, too. I got a a real good chuckle out of it. But the thing is, it is indicative of where the Democrats' minds are and what they think of religion, which is they don't take it seriously. They don't actually know anything about it. They want to claim it when it's convenient for them and then cast it away the second that it is even mildly inconvenient for them or conflicts with their agenda. Because to them, the political ideology actually is the religion and Christianity is just a means to sometimes try to reinforce it when they think that they can. I mean, we've seen that from Joe Biden. We've seen that from Nancy Pelosi. Devout Christian Joe Biden who's never heard of the book of Psalms and Nancy Pelosi who says that her faith encourages everything that she does, and it's it's how she makes her decisions, and that's actually the reason that she's in favor of abortion, despite being a Catholic, which outright condemns abortion. But yeah, sure. Every time that they believe that their faith is going to be convenient or something that is going to garner political support for them, they trot it out. The second that it is inconvenient for them, they slam it back in the closet and do not open it up again until they have to bring it back out for a second time. But Here's the thing, I think the left genuinely likes the moral certainty and the moral superiority that comes with religion and they like the feelings associated with the religion because they're very feelings based anyway, but ultimately they don't like the implication of it. They're fine with the feelings associated with God and they're fine uh, with there being some kind of moral superiority. And they like the passages that they think kind of support their agenda. What they don't like is actually having to apply it to their lives or make any kind of personal sacrifices for it. And by the way, this is true of the Democrat Party, but this is true for a lot of people personally as well. It's it's a human flaw. It's not something that is relegated to the realm of politics. But ultimately, this is why they prefer a malleable god. They prefer an unknown God that has no specifics, that has no standards, that they can just kind of pull those standards out and and make the standards up as they go, because their ideology is constantly shifting, and that's their real God. And so they prefer a God that is also constantly shifting. Basically, what the Democrats do is they remake God in their image, even when their image changes. And that way... They never have to worry about being right or wrong because what they believe and what they feel is always right because, ultimately, that's the God that they want, a God that they can constantly change and shift and mold into the God that they need at the moment to support their political beliefs. That's the God that they worship, the unknown God that has no standards, the God that essentially informs them that everything that they believe is right and everything their opponents believe is wrong. That's the God that they want, and it's the God that they worship. But just like the idols of old, it's not going to be a God that can save their souls or actually inform them to do something that will improve their life. Let's go to the chaplain's report on that note. In
0: 1775 the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics.
1: Our Chaplain's Report today, we're going to continue our series in the book of First Samuel. And for those of you who may, I mean, it's been a while. I know it's been a few weeks since we had a chaplain's report, you know, at Christmas break and everything. So just to kind of reset the stage here and help you remember what happened is Saul and Saul is pursuing David and Jonathan and David are trying to figure out a way to figure out whether or not Saul really does want to kill David or this is a temporary thing. They're trying really hard to come up with something, and they come up with this scheme. And it's mostly because David already knows that Saul wants to take his life, and he's already tried multiple times. Jonathan doesn't want to believe that his dad is capable of that, and he says, No, David, I really don't think so. I've, I've talked him down before. He's said that he's not going to pursue you anymore. And so Jonathan's still in doubt, and so David and Jonathan hatch up this scheme to tests Saul and his loyalty, and, and Saul fails this test. In fact, he is so angry when they try this, that not only is he angry that David does not show up because he was going to use it as an opportunity to kill David, he's so angry that he actually attacks Jonathan. And so, this is a pretty clear indication that Saul is too far gone, he has murderous intent towards David, and Jonathan goes out to report this, to David and to tell him what has transpired, and that is where our story picks up in 1 Samuel 20, verses 41 through 44, and in verse 41, he starts, When the boy was gone, David got up from the south side and then fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed each other and wept together until David wept immeasurably. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, since we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord will be between me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. So David set out and went his way while Jonathan went into the city. Couple things I wanted to bring up about this episode in, in David's life. Why why is David crying? I mean, we we know what just took place here, I just explained it. That he kind of already knew that Saul was trying to kill him and Saul wanted him dead. He's already attempted, he made an attempt on his life multiple times. Tried to kill him with a spear, tried to send men to his house to kill him where his his wife saved his life by sneaking him out of the house. There's been multiple times at this point where Saul has tried to kill David at some point even with his own hands. So why is Saul crying? Why is David crying? Shouldn't he already know this? I think there's a couple of possible explanations, and I don't know which one is correct. I think that there's one that I think is more probable. But it's possible that it's kind of one of those things that David knew, but this made it real. That maybe somewhere in the back of his head, David was thinking, Saul, the man that I knew when I was a young boy that gave me a chance with the giant who reached out to me and made me part of his family. Now, David probably didn't know this at the time, but even that was a plot on David's life. Even that was trying to ensnare him by using Saul's daughter as bait. But nonetheless, David probably doesn't know that at this point. And so there may be a part of David's mind, even if he didn't know it was there, that was really holding out hope that the old Saul is in there somewhere, that he really is a good man. He's just done something that he shouldn't have and and fallen uh, into a bad place. But but maybe there is some goodness left there in him. And if that part of David's soul was there, it is gone now. He knows. He knows. That the old Saul that he once knew and loved and treated like a, a father, he's just not there anymore. Any part of the old Saul, at least in David's mind, maybe that died right here and that's why he's so sad about it is because he finally realized that the old Saul is not there and he's never going to have his friend King Saul like he used to that that's just not an option anymore and that is a sad thing I mean you can understand why David would mourn that loss and, and that being you know made real that he, that he gave him another chance and even now Saul's just not going to come back the way that he did. He's not going to have the same level of love and affection, and in fact, he has become an enemy of David, and he knows that now. I think this is the more probable explanation. I think he feels Jonathan's pain. I think David knew. Based on the way that this conversation unfolds earlier in this chapter, I think David knows that the old Saul is gone. I think he knows... That Saul only sees him as an enemy and wants to see him dead. That there is no reconciliation that is coming. That he's not going to be able to be with his wife the way that he used to. I think David understands that. I really do. But Jonathan didn't. And because of that, He's seeing Jonathan's pain, and because he loves Jonathan so much, he feels that pain. He feels what it's like to have his best friend and his father wanting to kill one another, because that's what Jonathan's feeling right now, and I think David is feeling that for Jonathan. And he sees how upset it's getting Jonathan, and because of that, it's making him upset. He hates to see his friend in pain. Maybe it's a combination of these two, I don't know. But either way, this is a very traumatic event in David's life, to see... Somebody that he loved and trusted, and believed had shown him great favor, now wants to see his life taken from him, if his own, at Saul's own hands, if possible. And maybe that was combined with seeing how much agony his friend is in over learning these new details. Maybe that's it. I don't know. But either way, this is something that has been very difficult for the future King David. But I think it also shows us that Jonathan was a man of his word. You know, at this time, and I'm I'm not saying that this is good or bad, I'm just saying this is the way that it was then. There was a great deal of reverence for someone's father, especially if that father was a great man. Somebody like a king or a very wealthy man or whatever. There was just a level of respect for a person's father and family heritage ...that we don't understand as modern 21st century Americans. I mean, we can study about it, but we've never lived in it. But Jonathan and David did. There is a almost unhealthy reverence for a person's father... ...in their culture and at their time. And Jonathan has already given his word. He has given an oath to God that I'm going to do whatever it takes to protect David... And now he has to make good on that oath. Not only is he having to do so against his father's wishes, which would have been a very difficult thing to do in any generation, but especially in this time, at this place, he's also putting his life at risk. Because under the old law of Moses, if you were just the son of some random person and you displeased them and they killed you, there were consequences for that. That was murder. And you would die too. Like, there is legal protection against people doing that. There is no legal protection for the king doing that. If Jonathan wanted to kill, or sorry, if Saul wanted to kill Jonathan on the spot the next time he saw him because he has allied himself with David, he could have. And in fact, we just saw in the last passage that he came darn close to doing that. That when he suspected that Jonathan was in league with David, he threw a spear at him. So Jonathan, by keeping his oath and his covenant with David, he is not only defying his father, he is putting his own life at risk to protect his friend. That is what Jonathan is doing here. And so the level of friendship between these two is just amazing, and it astounds me, and and it really is the stuff of legends. But sometimes... I think what this illustrates is that God drives us out of comfort on purpose. I don't know that David becomes the king that he does with his humility and his love for people and his appreciation and gratitude to God if he doesn't go through this. This is the start of the long chapter, and I mean that metaphorically. I'm not talking about a literal chapter in the Bible because this spans several chapters. But this is a start of the long chapter Story that takes place with Saul trying to kill David, which is a significant amount of the book of 1 Samuel. This is the origin point. What would have happened if David had just been a a guy that is in good graces with the king, and then the king died, and instead of leaving it to his son, because it was God's will, that they just transferred the power over to David... Because that's, that's what should have happened, and that's what Saul should have done when he found out he was no longer the Lord's, Lord's anointed. He should have passed his crown on to David. I mean, maybe that would have been better in some sense, but the truth is, that just wasn't going to happen. God made Saul king knowing that this was going to take place. And he anointed David and, and allowed all this to happen knowing that Saul was going to pursue him and try to take his life david was living like a prince literally he was living alongside his prince brother-in-law with his princess wife that's literally how david was living up until this point point. and now he's a fugitive on the run that is not even allowed to worship his god in jerusalem he has been driven out and cast away from his people he can't even go home to bethlehem to see his folks And this is what David's life is going to be for a long time now, years on end. Sometimes God drives us out of our comfort to make us into the people that he needs us to be. And as much as we may not like it, as much as we may fight against it, as much as we may pray that God would not do that to us, sometimes we have to be driven out of our comfort zone in order to become the warriors that God needs in his army. And that's certainly what happens with David over the next few years. He goes from being a a very valiant young man to being the king that will lead God's people and the greatest king that they will ever see up until David's predecessor, Jesus the Christ. And this is the time that God is going to take to prepare him for that task. And I think God does the same thing to us sometimes too. Sometimes we're comfortable and something comes and just destroys that comfort. But it's because God needs to prepare us for the task that he has us ready to do. And a comfortable life just isn't suited to do that most of the time. I take a great deal of comfort in that. Stay the course, friends.
0: Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.